Hi, I'm Kat Holbrook, cook, lover of all things British and host of The Doorstep Kitchen. Welcome and thanks for tuning into this show which celebrates the best of British food and drink. Each week I'll be chatting to someone that inspires me by cooking or producing delicious things on our doorsteps. We'll also hear from our expert forager Imogen Davis on what delights you can find right now and I'll be sharing some of my favourite recipes which I hope will inspire you. Coming up in this episode, I'll talk through my recipe for samphire and crab linguine, and Imogen speaks about dandelions. But first, let's dive into my chat with Richard Bainbridge. My next guest has cooked at some of the UK's most established restaurants, such as the three Michelin-starred Waterside Inn. His restaurant in Norwich holds the prestigious 3AA rosettes, and he's no newbie to the airwaves himself, as he's a regular on Radio Norfolk. It's Richard Bainbridge. Hi, Richard. Hey, how are you? Yeah, really good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. Well, you know, in this traumatic time, yeah, we're doing all right, I think. Holding it together. Doing the best you can. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, brilliant. So what have you been doing during lockdown and, yeah, during during this crazy time? Oh, it's just been a bit mad, really. You know, when it first happened, our our business kind of went... In, within 24 hours, we were completely shut down, which was quite hard to take on board. Um, but I've tried to really turn it into a massive positive. We've been open five years. I work an 80 to a 90 hour week every week. Um, I've got two small children. Um, so I've kind of really tried to take stock on my business, on my work-life balance. Um, and also, how many businesses have ever had this opportunity that we've had in our industry mm. to press the reset button? Um, so, you know, things that you've wanted to change or you think aren't quite right, this is the opportunity, you know, you've been told to shut down, you've got the time to think, um, and then hopefully we can open up and, and whether that be six months or a year away where we get back to full capacity, um, hopefully we can be bigger and better than we were before it all kind of shut down, really. I think that's a really nice take on it. Yeah, and then when you open, have you been working on any new dishes or recipes or something that you think you're going to put on the menu? Yeah, well, I find it quite important to keep my my staff inspired as well as myself. So we've been having Zoom meetings. We've been having, you know, Mm. collective phone calls together. We've got a WhatsApp group of ideas and things that they're trying at home, that I'm trying at home, books that they're looking at. Um, So we're constantly trying to inspire each other and keep that momentum going. But when it comes to new dishes and writing menus, it's a nightmare because before this lockdown happened, we'd been working on asparagus dishes. We've been working on some other different dishes using seasonal ingredients because we're very focused on the seasonal ingredients. But we don't know when we're going to open. So is it going to be the summer? So we'll still get some asparagus. Maybe we'll have some elderflower. Or are we going straight into game season when we reopen? So we're trying to, like I say, keep really positive, keep Um, inspiring each other so as soon as we get around the table and we know that we can open the ideas are going to start flying and we can just run with it yeah that's a good idea got to kind of cover our basis really got to try out a few autumnal dishes yeah some for summer totally just have a few options um so yeah you mentioned obviously you love to cook kind of seasonal ingredients and especially ones from the norfolk area and you mentioned asparagus norfolk asparagus is is incredible i'm guessing that's something you use a lot Yeah, we're very lucky in um, East Anglia, really. Some of the produce we have from cattle to forage ingredients to farmed ingredients, the land and the seasons that we have around here, because we're one of the driest counties in the country. So chalk and flint base that we have in our soil is really amazing for growing things like potatoes, like rapeseed, like um, asparagus. Pearl barley, you know, we produce the best barley in the world. You know, Jack Daniels has got 
um, Norfolk barley in Scot- Scottish whiskey. Oh, About wow. 90% of those have Norfolk barley in it. So we have these amazing ingredients. Um, and that's what I love to kind of be really proactive on using. Um, only because, you know, like in anywhere, where, where you have a great product, it get exported before you even really know it was here. Um, so to kind of use things and keep it very close to home is really important. So like Norfolk asparagus, again, phenomenal. But then you go for a walk and you get your hour where you can walk out. And I live in the country. So with, uh, with my two girls, we're picking, you know, Jack of the Hedge at the moment. The wild garlic flowers are now coming up. We've taken the buds. We've cured them down. The wild garlic is there. Um, and then the rapeseed is now all coming up. The smell of rapeseed as I go on my country walk is phenomenal. But the leaves are beautiful. Um, and so there's loads of things around us that we can take inspiration from. And we're trying to cure at home. Myself and my head chef, we're... We're, we've got jars and kiln the jars of things in our own in our own kitchen and um, that we've been playing around with ready to bring to our kind of larder when we can open again yeah lovely you mentioned jack of the hedge i've recently um sort of discovered that and had a play around with it i can't say i'm particularly impressed with it yeah <laughs> what do you do with it um well i like it to be honest i really like it in a salad i had a salad the other day and i've been playing around with a lot of barbecue flavors and smoking and things like that whilst i've been off um and we made a beautiful salad the other day so we went for a walk so we picked some daisies we picked some um dandelion buds um we picked the dandelion leaves we picked the jack of the hedge um and it was beautiful in a salad and mixed it all together really simple dressing of a little bit of lemon juice and um rapeseed norfolk rapeseed oil phenomenal beautiful salad um some marigolds in there as well but i think jack of the hedge is great in butters so you know like with it's a kind of like the poor relation of the wild garlic, isn't it? Really, yeah. let's be honest. You know, it's kind of a, not as pungent at all. Yeah, it's kind of like the dodgy uncle of the wild garlic family. Um, <laughs> but I think it's a great product if you do like that garlicky flavour. It does help that season continue through a little bit more because um, I think chefs more and more now, um, and and people who aren't in the industry are being followed by seasons. Which when I first started cooking twenty years ago, they they weren't interested in seasons. People weren't. They just wanted great food and they weren't bothered about where it came from whereas mm-hmm. now they're so much more proactive so people walking around you see them now walking in the woods and they're looking for mushrooms they're looking for what is edible and so as a chef the year for me is dictated by what I see when I go for a walk with my children so you know you have the three cornered leeks that start first and that's normally beginning of February then the wild garlic kicks in then the jack of the hedge kicks in then the asparagus kicks in then Norfolk samphire, which again we're in the country we produce the best samphire which is phenomenal so that kicks in then you've got the potatoes then come in and the the norfolk rapeseed you see them big beautiful yellow flowers so you can your food calendar is very much dictated by what you see around you um and i love that idea that it's becoming more the norm with everybody not just chefs and i think at the moment if you just look on social media the amount of work that chefs and restaurants are putting in to try and inspire people to cook at home has been Mm. fantastic to see Absolutely. Um, so I've seen on Instagram that your wife, Katya, who you run the restaurant with, yeah. heads off um, like you do, you know, foraging with your girls and um, they kind of pick edible flowers, don't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, Katya is very much the driving force of my business. You know, she's my rock. She's she's the the dictator. She's the everything. <laughs> Charming. Um, <laughs> honestly. Um, and, and she but she's phenomenal. And her knowledge of of wild and forest ingredients is far superior to mine um, and because she grew up in east germany she grew up on the other side of the wall um so kind of foraging and looking for for local wild ingredients um 
was something that her grandfather naturally taught her. So, you know, when we go out, she's telling us stories. And my daughter, um, she's telling us stories about when she used to go foraging with her grandfather and it was just the norm, whereas now it's quite fashionable. Um, but, you know, mm. I think it's something fantastic. When you go out and you actually look around you and see what is there and what is edible, it's fantastic. You know, like daisies, for instance, are beautiful they're beautiful in a tea you can make a tea with them they're beautiful as a salad you can marinate them into a panna cotta which the flavor is really kind of um floral with that as well um mm -hmm. but things like that that we've walked past we've picked them we've thrown them about being children and we've never thought they were edible and yeah. now they're there and and wild mushrooms and and the leaves that come through and you know wood sorrel or all these different herbs that you can see when all you need to do is open your eyes and go for a walk um but for me not only is it great for the restaurant, um, it's great to inspire myself and my team when she comes in with this big bounty of foraged ingredients. But I think my children, Holly, who is six, she is the best mushroom picker I know. Mm -hmm. and it might be because she's closer to the ground than anybody I know. But once she hones in, she has got it. She knows which ones are edible. She knows which ones aren't. Wild garlic, if you go wild garlic picking with my daughters, both of them, and Coco, who is um, 18 months old, honestly, it's like going for a walk with cows. They literally look like they're chewing on grass because their mouths are just full of this wild garlic. And I think what a fantastic childhood um, and a palette base that we're given them from such a young age of, you know, where they're going to go to um, in the long run. And I think everybody is now starting to do that because I think there was a culinary dark point and I was born in the early 80s. And I think the 80s to the mid to late 90s, we kind of go through this black patch of culinary knowledge and taste and want. Um, for seasonal produce because um, supermarkets came this sterile world of non-seasons came and we all went in and we picked what we wanted whatever the season I want sprouts in summertime well you can have sprouts so you want parsnips in June you can have them so there was no relevance to, to seasons and because everyone was so busy they just went into this robot way of eating I think um, and the processed food that we all grew up on um, whereas now I think that generation or my generation um, mm. we're looking at our children going our oh, food was rubbish growing up like what have I done I, you know no wonder I was a fat kid with glasses like there, <laughs> there must be a way and I think now even the cookery demonstrations we normally do at Benedict's people are so much more interested in food and the providence of where it comes from so we're there to teach the next generation yeah, totally. And I want to speak to you about wine in Norfolk as well, because there's this lovely vineyard called Flint Vineyard yeah. that you um, you have on the, on the wine list. And I think you were the first restaurant to actually put this um, local winery on, on the wine list. Am I right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ben and Hannah um, are fantastic guys. You know, they started up a very small independent vineyard. They borrowed some land, planted some grapes. And to watch their company grow has been amazing. And, they're you know, they're really good friends. Um, and when they first brought their wine to us, we'd only been open about six months. And again, we were really focused on trying to use as many local ingredients and produce as possible. So it was a no brainer for us to get it on. Mm. Um, and just so to kind of be that first company they worked with and watch it grow from them delivering it in the back of their car with their kids kids on the school run to now them having a delivery driver who drops it off is wonderful to see and the flavors and their Bacchus and their their Charmac which is a pink sparkling um I actually had some um last night actually with the barbecue that I cooked for dinner it's beautiful and something really interesting um, and I think British wine is going through the roof at the moment 
Absolutely. When you look at the English sparkling, we're rivaling France um, in the Champagne region. And, and the more the climate changes, our, our sparkling wine is only going to get better. Um, and big champagne houses are buying up land in the UK at the moment so they can take the, the grapes back to, the, to France to make their champagne, which is phenomenal to see. So, um, yeah, it's really lovely to work with people like um, Ben and Hannah at Flint because I think they're definitely one to watch um, in the wine industry in the UK. Amazing. Uh, have you got any other Norfolk producers that you think are worth speaking about, like Ben and Hannah? Yeah, so another one um, that we've literally put on our Instagram last night to sell some some sirloin, you know, is Fen Farm Dairy, which are the guys who create um, Baron Bygone cheese, which is the most amazing brie-style cheese, right? Yeah, it's so good. <laughs> so, so good, right? And it's on the Norfolk-Suffolk border. And Johnny there, been in his family for generations, and he's given it this new lease of life. He's the most eccentric farmer guy, hair everywhere, but their cheese is just beautiful um and their their raw milk that they produce is fantastic their butter their their natural um churned butter that they make there um and they sell out as well so honestly that on a slice of bread with some of the wild garlic that you've gone out and picked mm. honestly is beautiful one of the best things could on, on also be in my you know last meals yeah. is that good um but they're brilliant and for about the last year we've started using their dairy cows when they go out to pasture where normally they would be um culled off he now puts it out to pasture for six months um the ex-dairy cows they go out to pasture have a little bit of retirement um and we now serve ex-dairy cow at the restaurant which i'm really proud of because i think it's a story that needs to continue you know there's when you think about these amazing cows that have um been producing this amazing dairy to make this beautiful cheese and then they just get put on the skip heap um is is devastating to me because i think if i was a cow and you'd use me for milk all my life and then you just put me on a rubbish tip at the end of it that would break my heart but if everything of my body is being used at the end of it and they're still being celebrated at the end of their life is phenomenal that's really fab Retired dairy cows is absolutely delicious, no doubt about yeah. it. You know, it's like anything, I think. When chefs, as our knowledge change and our kind of our interests change, there's certain things that I remember always putting in the bin growing up and working in three-star restaurants and two- and one-star restaurants all around the world. There's stuff I put in the bin and didn't even think about it because that was what we needed to do. But now we're using so much more of what comes through the door. And I'm a real strong believer. And I think my chefs think I'm a bit crazy sometimes because I treat everything as though how I would want to be treated. Yeah. And whether that is a carrot or a cabbage or an egg or a piece of fish or a piece of meat, if you nurture it and love it as you would want to be nurtured and loved, you always end up with a better product. So like, like I say, if I was a carrot, and I'd grown and I'd done all that effort to get to be a beautiful carrot for you. And you then put my peel in the bin because you couldn't really be bothered to do anything with it. Or you put the tops in the bin because you couldn't really be bothered. I'd be heartbroken because why any? Why should you waste any part of me? Mm. Because I've done all this for you. Um, and so I'm a really strong believer in using every single aspect of everything that we possibly can just out of pure respect for that ingredient or product. Um, and that's something that I tried to teach the guys who come through the kitchens at Benedict's that, you know, and hopefully that will, again, like we were talking about changing the way that people eat and drink in our food culture, that will hopefully, you know, in Norfolk, when other chefs, they open their own restaurants, they'll do exactly the same. So, you know, food waste goes down. Um, we're using more, we're being more creative and customers and, and clientele get a better product at the end of it because we're being more creative 
Yeah, absolutely. And you are super creative at your restaurants. Um, I just want to talk about some of your kind of signature dishes. And you won Great British Menu in 2015. Yeah. The same year you opened your restaurant. I literally don't know how you managed to do that. Oh, <laughs> wig, wig, nudge, nudge. That worked out well, didn't it? <laughs> and yeah, you're really creative with your, with your menu. And you've got um, Nanny Bush's trifle, which is this yeah. incredible thing. So yeah, can you talk me through some of your signature dishes and well, I yeah, think, all of that? Um, like you said, um, you know, we were very lucky. Gods were definitely shining on us um, from one way or another that the programme came out three months after us opening the restaurant um, and it kind of, you know, and we were struggling, are we going to be okay? And then Great British Menu came out, we won the series and it just went through the roof. Um, and so to have signature dishes in a restaurant where you'd only been open three to four months mm. was crazy for me. I, I never thought that would happen to me within four months, um, which has been brilliant. And, you know, and the trifle, as you said, Nanny Bush's trifle, who was my nanny, um, she made this trifle. I recreated it in a more elegant way than my nanny did. And it's just, it's beautiful. It represents her as a homage to her. But at the same time, everyone can connect with a trifle. Everybody's yeah. made a trifle. Everyone's had a trifle made for them, good or bad stories. Um, and so they can associate with it, which is great. But to still have it on five years later and people still ask for it, um, mm. is great but another one um, that we do which I'm really proud of is a whole roasted quail so again when it comes I liked food should I don't like the term retro or nostalgic um, but it should provoke memories food is really strong with memories whether you're sitting at the table Sunday lunch was really real big thing for me growing up in a single parent family in the 1980s with not really any money the one thing that we had was to sit around the table and have a roast chicken um, me and my sister and my mum, and we'd wheel the TV round because mm. it used to be on wheels and it had the fake wood on the side. We'd wheel it round um, and my mum would put on EastEnders Omnibus on on a Sunday afternoon and we'd sit and have our roast dinner. Um, so to kind of recreate that Sunday feel, um, we've created your own mini roast dinner all to yourself. So what we take, again, a brilliant Norfolk product. So we take Norfolk quail, um, John and Ellie's um, amazing company in, in North Norfolk where they used to produce the eggs um, and then they had a surplus of these beautiful quails left over. So they've now started producing them for the industry. So we take that, we debone the whole bird out. So quite classical. And we stuff that with a farce, which yeah. has got um, some sausage meat going through it, almost like a stuffing sausage meat, some um, chutney that goes through there, some garlic, some uh, livers, bits and pieces. We tie all the bird back up and we truss it like you would do an oven-ready bird. So it looks like a perfect ready-to-roast chicken, mini baby chicken, um, but there's no bones in it. So we roast that off um, and then we put that on a bed of pearl barley risotto. As I said before, barley is one of the... Um, best products or exports out of the county that we have and we produce the best barley in the world so to make a risotto out of that yeah. nutty rich creamy that kind of goes underneath and we serve you know a selection of kind of great seasonal vegetables that are grown either in allotments or in food cooperatives at just outside of the city we roast them all off and it's your own roast dinner that you don't have to share with anyone mm, so if you want all the stuff and you want the breast you want the leg you cut into that bird and it is all yours and it's your mini roast dinner and every time I serve that it takes me back to being around my mum's table on a Sunday afternoon watching EastEnders. And I think that can be so powerful. Um, so we've kind of got that, which is great. Um, and another signature dish that we've had on since day one um, is the classic lemon tart. Mm -hmm. 
which I think was one of the things, you know, um, Marco Pierre White's White Heat that you've probably heard of before um, inspired a generation of chefs. Um, and it inspired me when I remember seeing it at 16 years old. Um, and I remember opening the book up um, and I had to do a project at Catering College and I found that lemon tart recipe um, and I said, and I made it once and I realized that this is what I want to do for the rest of my life because it was just a thing of pure class and beauty. Um, and I always vowed to myself that if I ever owned my own restaurant, I would make a lemon tart every single day of the week um, just because I think it represents everything that I love about our industry, which is the skill that is involved in cooking a perfect lemon tart is actually really high. And people think it's a really simple thing to make, but actually to get that pastry, get the perfect set, all of these things to come together at the same time is actually a really difficult thing. And, and so we make it every day. We put it on our set lunch menu and it won't come off because I love it so much. Mm -hmm. When I was younger and I was doing a ski season um, and every, what it was, Monday, we were supposed to make a lemon tart. And lemon tart is, I agree, completely lovely. But when you're young and you want to go skiing, it's not the perfect dessert to prepare. Because <laughs> obviously you've got to make the pastry and then rest it and then yeah, make yeah. blind, you know, blind bake it. And I like to chill the pastry case a bit yeah, before. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it is a labour of love. So I made that for a few weeks and thought, okay, I'm never going to get out of the kitchen on a Monday if I'm going to make this tart. So I just ended up making a lemon posset with shortbread on the side. I used to make the shortbread while they were eating their main course, make it, get it in the oven. And um, I used to get another at least hour skiing. <laughs> uh, amazing. Um, but I bet the posset was lovely though. You know, it, it was nice, but... Um... <laughs> Love it's, it. it's all about it's all about cutting corners. Yeah, right. <laughs> but um, keeping the quality up. Yeah. Oh dear. <laughs> um, brilliant. So you clearly love Norfolk produce, and you're a patron for Proudly Norfolk, who put on these amazing food markets. And I always see on Instagram that you're there and you're selling custard donuts. Yep. So how did that come about? And because they literally sell out in minutes <laughs> honestly the the story behind the donuts um we we always love to cook food and play around with food that we love to eat and enjoy ourselves um, and donuts are always something that we love in the kitchen and we talk about and katia and my daughters love a donut um and one we kind of was sitting there going what can we do what can we do for these events and you know what can we do that kind of represents Benedict's of its quality, but also a different price point? So they kind of get the idea of who we are, but, uh, you know, at a smaller price point um, for people to, to want to come to us again. And so my wife, you know, I'd made, we'd played around with the donut and mm. she said, well, let's do a donut. Let's do donuts. Let's do donuts. And I said, oh, all right, we'll play around with it. Um, so it's all the brainchild of Katia, really. So she said, let's do some donuts. So we did them. Um, we made 500 and we sold out in, I think, literally 45 minutes. Wow. Um, and they'd all gone. And, but we'd paid the money to have the stall there. So all we did really was sat on an empty stall for the rest of the day saying hello. Um, but it's <laughs> something that, you know, we then do now as a side thing as well. And they're always quite fun. Um, and now it's kind of taken off. So in these times, even before, you know, the coronavirus and everything, you've got to constantly keep in the public eye and in their mind mm. frame and, and look at different ways that you can get into their belly. Um, 
and with it not just being the restaurant. So whether it's donuts or now the ready meals, uh, but also mm. like with anything, you've got to constantly keep relevant. It's like fashion, isn't it? I always think the hospitality industry, very similar to the fashion industry, is that you have to constantly keep on the cusp of the next big thing. Because the minute you miss that, people will see that you've missed that and you become old fashioned and you become a little bit boring and you don't get the clientele and the money that you really need to to make your restaurant sustainable. Yeah. And talking of the next big thing, um, I um, I see that you cook with hay. And yeah. I've recently seen that hay, I think, has been quite a, quite a big thing, whether it's, you know, um, hay um, roasted you know, chicken or beetroots, I think you do, yeah. or, or using it in a dessert, so like a hay panna cotta. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so how do you use hay? Because I've definitely seen that on your menu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and again, hay is, is one of those products that is really traditional. I mean, if you look back to even Escoffier's time um, and look at some of the cookbooks that he's produced, you know, hay, hay baked mutton is something that we've been doing in the UK. And that is one of our real traditional dishes that's been around for the last hundred years. Mm. Um, and we've kind of all, almost forgot how to cook with hay. You know, hay box cooking was a really traditional way of cooking in World War II. So, you know, what we, when the resources were really low, what you used to do is you used to have a box and you'd pack it all with hay and you'd make up your stew, you'd bring it up to the boil, you'd put it in and you'd encase it all in this hay and shut the box. And as the hay heated, it would infuse your stew as well as cook it and make it keep it warm. Yeah. So actually cooking with hay is a, a real traditional British way of cooking. Um, so we're only really starting to bring that back um, mm. and kind of bring it back to life. So, you know, and when you start thinking, it's like anything, there's no rule books in cooking anymore, is there? You know, yeah, you don't, no. you, you know, there's nothing, there's no kind of regimen. Like when I first started cooking, the French way of cooking was what, how you learn, and then you would maybe tweak it along the way. Now there's no rule books. You just, you know, you might as well throw it out the window. You might as well throw the rule book out the window and do exactly what you like. So, Hay, again, is like you've said, is brilliant infused into a sweet cream because you, you know, into a dessert or an ice cream or a panna cotta or a parfait, you know, it almost takes this caramel kind of a flavor, like this white chocolatey caramel flavor, which is brilliant. Mm. Um, and then you've got hay smoked, you know, hay smoked um, beetroot, like you say. So we salt bake them um, in the salt crust we then put lots of hay in there we mix it all together we bake them then we put it on a bed of hay and we set fire to the hay put a lid on and you get this hay smoke flavor to it um or you know even with game birds you know a traditional way of drying out and curing game birds um so the blood didn't go off um which then in turn turned the meat off mm. you stuff them with hay so the hay would absorb the blood but also it flavors the meat at the same time and so you roast it with that hay in it and you get this beautiful kind of rich caramel flavor mm. like i said um and it's always that old phrase isn't it that if it grows together it goes together because totally. you know when we get to reopen after lockdown yeah it's very much now i think about being different but being um accessible but yeah, we've got to really be on the top of our game. But the minute we get to open, we need to be back where we were, but a hundred times better. <laughs> no, no pressure then. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> so Richard, lastly, what is your favourite British ingredient right now? As every episode, I'm going to create a recipe based on what you say. Perfect. Okay, so, you know, like you've said um, the, all the way through this, that I'm really passionate about local seasonal ingredients. 
And one of the kind of Norfolk gems that I think um, is our, one of our shining glories is Norfolk Samphire. Um, it's beautiful. It grows on the North Norfolk coast near where I live. Um, I remember picking it with my granddad after a day going to the seaside. We'd go and pick some samphire and we'd take it home and have it on a poached egg. Um, it's just so simple. Traditionally, it was known as the poor man's asparagus because it was cheaper. It was free if you went out and foraged for it. You know, you're starting to get more and more of it outside of Norfolk now when it is in season. You know, you see it in veg shops. You even see it in supermarkets now. Um, and it's really, really versatile. You can put it with roast potatoes. You can put it going through some um, haricot beans. You could, you know, just serving it with a little bit of salt marshmallow lamb. Beautiful, super simple, perfect with fish, meat, you know, even a cold terrine and pickling it and salting it and curing it. Um, there's so many different ways of using samphire. Um, and I think it's something quite different and unique um, that I'm very proud of to live in Norfolk and have that on my doorstep. Wow, so many ideas there. Thank you, Richard. That is brilliant. It's been so lovely speaking to you. Thank you so much for your time. As Richard is in Norfolk, he has some wonderful samphire or samphire at his fingertips. He has given us so many ways to use the plant, but I thought today I'd share a recipe for samphire and crab linguine. If you're near the coast, I urge you to have a look for it, but those like me who are inland can get samphire from quite a few supermarkets these days. So this pasta recipe is for two, um, and it's very simple. You bring a pan of generously salted water to the boil and when boiling, add 150 grams of linguine and cook until al dente. Meanwhile, in a separate pan, gently heat a good glug of extra virgin olive oil with the zest of one lemon, quarter of a chopped chilli and 100 grams of samphire. When the pasta is ready, transfer it to the other pan and toss together with the juice of one lemon, um, a pot of crab. I like using brown and white crab meat and use a ladle of the pasta water to make a sauce. Then stir in some hard cheese like Berksbell, Sussex Charmer or Parmesan. Just remember the cheese, crab and particularly the samphire are very salty, so I don't think you'll need any salt. Um, so just make sure you taste it, um, but do add plenty of black pepper. Um, and that's it, it's really quick. So you've got friends coming around on a weeknight, I uh, highly suggest this one. You can visit doorstepkitchen.com forward slash recipes forward slash samphire for the full recipe, but I've also linked the exact page in the notes under this episode. Now we're moving on to speak to our expert forager, Imogen Davis from London Restaurant Native. She joins us every week. Hello everyone, I hope you've had fun with your Alexanders. This week we're talking about a flower that adds sunshine to fields and gardens and in fact up until the 1800s people used to pull up the grass in their gardens and make way for useful weeds like this. I'm sure you're all well used to picking these a little later in the year and making a wish when you disperse the seeds. It's of course the wonderful dandelion. When identifying dandelions, look for the familiar yellow gold flower head growing from a single hollow leafless stem which exudes a milky sap when it's broken. The leaves are lobed in a rosette shape and when it fruits, the seeds appear with their downy white parachutes. They open up in the morning with the sunrise and they close in the evening. Although we're probably not quite accustomed to seeing dandelion as a food source, it's a rich source of beta carotene and vitamins A, C and K. It also contains a high level of iron, calcium and potassium. It's a great way to add a foraged element to your meals, so just add it to some salads or sandwiches, really easy. 
We were given a lovely gift of some dandelion honey this week and I don't even think it lasted a day. It was such a hit. It's made really easily by picking the petals, boil it in some water before adding some sugar and a little lemon. I definitely recommend you give it a try and maybe make some extra as a gift because who doesn't love the gift of food? Flavour-wise, dandelion does taste quite bitter, so it's always good to contrast it with some foods like tomatoes or cheese or fruits or maybe even make a nice sweet dandelion honey vinaigrette. That will be great for the old summer salads that I'm hoping we're going to have some more sunshine. I haven't ever made dandelion wine, but I think I'm going to try it this week. John Wright, the River Cottage Forager, has a great recipe for it. Another part of the dandelion that you can use is the root. I generally dig it a little later on in the season when there aren't any flowers, so all of their delicious nutrients are packed into the roots. You simply dehydrate them and then grind them and use them basically as a decaffeinated coffee. Or in my case, I actually turned it into a dandelion espresso martini and it was delicious. The possibilities really are endless, so have fun getting creative. But do remember to always cross-reference when you're foraging. Even if you're a little unsure, it's best to leave it and check another day. Maybe when the fruits are more developed or you can easily identify the flowers or the leaves. Just to be doubly sure. Amazing, thank you Imogen. And just a note to say that you need permission from the landowner if you're going to uproot anything. But let's be honest, most of us have dandelions in our garden anyway. That's all for this episode of The Doorstep Kitchen. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please do rate, review and subscribe as it really makes a difference. Next week, I speak to Sarah Wyndham Lewis, honey sommelier and co-owner of Bermsey Street Bees. She's a massive fan of rhubarb, so I'll be creating something delicious using that. See you next time.